The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. This podcast began with both Pete and I, two kindred souls with a passion for moving the recovery process forward. If you've started listening more recently, say since the beginning of 2022, you likely noticed that Pete is absent from conversations. This is because he had a rather unexpected and abrupt departure from this earthly plane. Pete's voice remains in the intro in reverence to and respect for his part of our joint vision for this project. Simply put, it wouldn't be where it is today, nor have a future without him. Now, on to another great conversation. talk about we were already talking about it the excitability the corticospinal tracts that's kind of where I was at too I was like well, we haven't talked about that because <laughs> that part was cool to me and I feel like people would like to hear that and I feel like I can kind of ex- I think I can explain it in a way that it's way shorter than what I have sent to you guys but I think I can explain it in like a very easy way to understand because I think it's cool and I also think it's important because I don't think anyone knows that's actually what happens like how your how your brain chemistry changes so much and how your all your neurons are affected by it welcome back to post-stroke fatigue this is part two of a two-part conversation where Tracy Bentley Root occupational therapist Alyssa Brockman and Sarah Battaglia, occupational therapy students from Duville College or Duville University, as it is now known, and I talk about this fascinating topic. There's something for everyone, whether you're a survivor, a clinician, or a care partner, you will find value in this conversation. If you're enjoying the podcast, there are several ways that you can contribute. Number one is through sharing podcast with your friends, family, your colleagues, 
you can donate in cash or you can get an all-star Pete trading card. Lastly, you can share your knowledge and join me as a guest on the show. Look for relevant links in the show notes. Melissa, I wonder if we could speak about the patterns a little bit, because I think that was an excellent thought that you had. And so what would somebody do to identify patterns? How do you, how do you start noticing what those patterns are for you? Um, kind of the, the first thing that comes to my mind in that sense, and I did do a little research on it is diaries. And I know diaries are not for everybody. And it is a time consuming activity, so to speak, that you have to really be diligent on. But even just jotting down information, like, okay, I woke up from a two hour nap, I feel, I feel okay. And just jotting down how you feel during certain activities. And then once you kind of have that, say, built for a week, I think it's hard for us to identify our own patterns, but bringing that diary to a physician, like to an occupational therapist and evaluate it together, have the practitioners look at that patterns and have them see, you know, what could be one trigger and okay, based on that trigger, how are we going to use an intervention to help compensate for that? Almost like creating a body map, kind of figuring out what parts of our body in certain activities or what cognitive aspects are, are challenging in a certain activity and then finding that purpose, that meaning as to why. And I think once someone hears or together we figure out why, it's almost motivation to engage and get over or better that aspect. This sounds like an amazing OT intervention to do with our people. Like just, we could create a little chart for somebody just kind of based on the times of the day and maybe give them some prompts to think about. I love what you were saying about a nap. Well, how long, how often do you take a nap? Do you take a nap every day? How is the nap? the same length of time? Do you just need like a power nap or do you need that two hour nap? And then reflecting back on how you feel when you wake up and what happens later in the day? Like, do you, what times of the day do you actually feel like you have some energy? You know, I, I think that, um, that's something we could do starting pretty soon after we work with somebody who's had a stroke have a conversation with them about how their routines are now changed when, because their sleep habits are going to be changed. So many things have changed now that they've had their neurologic event. And sometimes they're not going to be the routine that they had before because of obviously everything that we were saying in regards to the changes and the variability of their injury. So have them identify their current routines and really then maybe tap in and make recommendations for more fatiguing type activities to meet their new routine, as opposed to going back the old way because the old way isn't working any longer. 
but increasing their awareness of what their body needs now could be very beneficial for these individuals. Yeah. One of the articles that I was reading did talk about energy conservation, or was that in your notes where I read about energy conservation techniques? I just wanted to say, I'm loving how we're having this conversation. And in my mind, we're talking to caregivers. So I just really love the fact that we, um, we aren't saying that, you know, we're not recommending certain assessments and we're not, we're just discussing with someone things that they could be doing in a way that is um, understandable. And to be honest, it doesn't sound overwhelming because oftentimes I feel when people come through rehab, they're just so overwhelmed by everything that people are saying that if we can give them small things that they can conceptualize and put into practice themselves, it'll be a gift for them as well. Them as the caregiver, not only for the person they're providing the care for, because that's a, there's a union there. Um, that relationship has to be maintained um, and it has changed. And caregivers, you know, so many people just kind of toss around, have the caregiver do it, have the caregiver do it. And their lives are different now too, because they have more responsibility on their shoulders and how we can't just keep adding things on to a caregiver, but making something more meaningful, like what you guys are talking about with figuring some things out, because if if the caregiver and the loved one do this together, there is nothing saying that this can't be used by the caregiver too. You know, they, I'm sure they get tired. And so when is everybody functioning at their best and how can we plan our day around when we feel good? I want to talk about, we were already talking about it, the excitability the corticospinal tracts, that's kind of where I was at too. I was like, well, we haven't talked about that. Because <laughs> that part was cool to me. And I feel like people would like to hear that. And I feel like I can kind of, ex- I think I can explain it in a way that's it's way shorter than what I have sent to you guys. But I think I can explain it in like a very easy way to understand. Because I think it's cool. And I also think it's important because I don't think anyone knows that's actually what happens, like how your, how your brain chemistry changes so much and how your, all your neurons are affected by it. Please, Sarah. And like giving them, it's like giving them that quick view of their body map of what's going on in their brain. So I really, I do think we should talk about it because it, it kind of gives that background of why and how. Yes. Thank you. To answer the clinicians who are listening to the podcast. Yes, it is very, I'll try to do it like simplified because there's, I was like down a rabbit hole that day. I was, I was like, wow, this is so cool. But there's just like a few things I want to, should I just go right into it? Go for it. Okay. So after talking about briefly talking about how our brain chemistry changes and depending on where the stroke happened, the whole chemical makeup of your brain is changing constantly. There's a lot of research saying how there's spikes and drops in certain levels of neurotransmitters. 
all before a stroke, during a stroke and after a stroke. And I think that it's important to kind of touch on what's actually happening. And there's a few different reasons why post-stroke fatigue is happening. Obviously there's a million different factors associated with it, but one piece of research that's really interesting that scientists are looking at is called cortical motor excitability. So that's pretty much just how excitable your neurons are, the little neurons in your brain. So there's a certain threshold that your neurons have to fire. And then after you have a stroke, that threshold is way higher than before. So you have to work way harder to get your neurons to fire after the stroke. So they measure this using transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is just basically like little shocks to your brain. So they will look at stroke patients and see how much of a shock that their neurons need to fire. And they found that after experiencing a stroke, they needed a lot more of a shock to stimulate the neurons and get them to fire. So, um, those, the movements you do, like your volitional movements, how your brain works, how you move your body, how you walk and talk and everything. That's all depending on the firing of those neurons and stroke survivors use a lot of effort to fire those neurons and trigger that threshold to happen. So when we're talking about working hard, it's the body's working hard. Correct? The body, it's actually both. So the st- one of the studies that I read was the body's working hard, but the brain's also working hard to process whatever signals it's getting. So it's actually both motor input, which is like the signal you get into your brain, and then motor output, which is your body actually doing the movement. So it was actually both that's affected by it, which is very interesting. It is interesting. And a lot of this, it's unconscious. Like you're not, you're not thinking about making, you're not thinking it to happen. I mean, I know that um, thoughts occur before a motor action occurs and the brain fires, but it's not something that you can walk around all day thinking, well, my neurons are firing now and, um, you know, I'm going to make them fire harder and stronger and longer and faster. It doesn't work that way. I was going to say, and that low excitability level then leads to more fatigue. So it it almost, again, it's, uh, it's a cycle. It's a cycle. Yes. Also, um, the perceived, so you could measure fatigue is subjective. So you could measure fatigue as just your, your perceived exertion. So also something that was interesting was that the fatigue is perceived by the stroke survivor when the, when their movements or their output is less than what they put in. So they see, they, they feel like they're putting in so much effort Mm -hmm. and they don't get that expected outcome. And that also contributes to the fatigue. It's like that perceived effort is not aligning with what they think is happening. And that's all just because of that reduced excitability of the neurons and just a lot more, it just takes a lot more energy for them. And also, um, yeah. 
That's interesting. And it makes sense. Yeah. So it said, it's, I'm just trying to recap what I said. Cause I did say a lot, um, basically stroke survivors with a lot of fatigue and reported high fatigue exhibit very high motor thresholds. So it takes them a lot of work to fire those neurons. And that's pretty much the premise of the whole thing I just explained. We spoke about quite a bit of casually discussed some things that occupational therapists could be doing. What else have you guys found in your literature review for what ways to address post-stroke fatigue? I have one, one before we get into the major one, which I think would be energy conservation strategies. I just wanted to touch on physical deconditioning, which is a kind of a separate aspect of post-stroke fatigue. So it's kind of like a cycle, which is what we were talking about previously. But if you're fatigued after stroke, you kind of avoid any sort of physical activity, which yeah, I would. Um, And then that just leads to further deconditioning and more fatigue, which then leads to being unmotivated and kind of leaves you in a really bad place to start. And I think that, well, there is a lot of implications that say that you have to improve your physical endurance and through exercise, and that could potentially reduce a trigger for fatigue. That's not going to fix it, but there's a lot of studies that are suggesting that physical activity kind of decreases that physical deconditioning I'm talking about and increases activity tolerance, which is going to decrease your your fatigue level. I think it said, I got this right off the American Heart Association website. They recommended that people that have had a stroke participate in 20 to 60 minutes of aerobic exercise three to five days a week. So they were recommending walking on the treadmill as like a low intensity aerobic exercise to do. They also recommended resistance training less frequently than the aerobic training, but still the strength training was something that they wanted to, wanted you to incorporate. And I think that's just improving your overall physical activity level will help reduce that impact. So a treadmill and walking could be difficult for a person who has significant motor impairments. Do you have any other ideas of what people could do if they can't walk well, or if they can't get on a treadmill? Yeah. So I was thinking of some ideas that I would personally recommend. I was thinking more. So say if they have a lower body impairment or a hemi impairment, I was thinking modified yoga. That's like a big thing that we talk about in school. (laughs) We actually did yoga once, I think, in our first year of school at DUville to learn about it. But there's a a bunch of, there's a bunch, it wasn't that long ago. (laughs) There's a bunch of research about modified yoga. And there's a lot of yoga practices that are geared towards people that have physical impairments. So that's one thing. If you're confined to a wheelchair, but could necessarily use your arms. I would say doing just upper extremity strengthening activities that could also get your heart rate up. Um, Just any sort of reduction in sedentary behavior. So it doesn't have to be walking on a treadmill. That was just something I think Mm -hmm. that they actually 
gave me a idea for? I think another one that everyone can have access to and that also has shown to improve sitting and standing balance is simply doing sit to stands on a couch or a chair. I think that's kind of an easy go-to. Um, yeah, and I think the biggest part with that is knowing your own limits. If you feel as though it's unsafe, make sure you have a caregiver next to you that can assist with a sit to stand. And kind of going off what Sarah was saying with upper body strengthening, you know, if you don't have like a resistance band or anything, simple. Um, we learned about this in school, getting a can of soup and doing, you know, soup arm curls or doing forward punches because that is not only giving strength, but it's also range of motion. So you're kind of getting a two for one and it's aerobic. You're getting your heart rate up and you're increasing that endurance, even though you are sitting. So just different options that aren't walking. I think also you can grade what you're doing. So if you want to work on, maybe if you're working on tone or general weakness, you can just increase the repetitions and that would also give them the sort of aerobic mm -hmm. benefit as well. Like, okay, we're, we usually do 10 repetitions of this activity today. You should do 30 because that's going to get your heart rate up and like just lower the weight and maybe increase the repetitions. I feel like there's a lot of activities you can modify, like even just daily activities you can modify that will increase their aerobic capacity. Another thing just to keep in mind is although we want survivors to be exercising, once they feel that it's enough, it's time to stop. We don't want to be over exercising or pushing the body too hard because that can exacerbate other conditions or inflammation, which can lead to slower recovery time. So just being conscious that, you know, when your body feels tired, it's okay to stop and it's okay to do 10 reps one day because you're feeling that more fatigue and it's okay to do 30 the next day and it's going to range. I think that's just a big thing to kind of keep in mind when we are exercising and talking about exercising. I'm glad you brought that up because we do need to pay attention to how the body feels because we don't want to put ourselves in an unsafe situation. So one of the things that Pete always talked about in the podcast was BDNF, that brain-derived neurotropic factor that's released anytime you engage in aerobic activity. So, you know, what, what you're talking about, it's addressing a lot of factors. And if people have a motor impairment and they are incorporating that affected side, they're also getting those repetitions in that will lead to improvement in motor ability as well. That's exactly what, yeah, like increasing repetitions would do. Mm -hmm. Addressing that aerobic, I was talking about addressing the their cardiovascular level, but then again, you bring in that whole neuroplasticity aspect to it. And then it's kind of killing two birds with one stone. Like you have that, you're promoting that learning and memory process in the brain. And you're also kind of exercising, I think. 
You are. It's because the, the body parts are not silos. The entire body is so integrated with itself that, you know, you're, you're always getting more than one benefit from what you do. Were we going to talk about something else? Energy conservation. Yes. Other things that we as OTs can be addressing when we're talking specifically about post-stroke fatigue. So I think me and Alyssa both have a kind of like a list that we created. So I think we're just going to alternate sharing our the ideas we came up with. So my first idea, aside from the physical activity, is I saw someone create a calendar where activities can be completed. So basically what she did was she knew she had to, the girl that, completed the calendar. It's not a one size fits all, but she knew she had to complete aerobic exercise. She knew she had to sleep. She knew she had to take her medications and she knew she had to pick one functional goal that she wanted to work on. So she would plan out her week every Sunday through Saturday, every single day, she'd plan out her week, 8am. I'm going to do my aerobic activity, 30 minutes of that 9am. I take my medications 12, I'm going to have some repetitive task practice of she chose opening a water bottle, but I think that you could choose anything and it would really help promote that neuroplasticity and those increased repetitions are going to help promote that relearning process in the brain. So doing that every day also kind of assisted the recovery process and having that plan written out in front of her, the calendar, so she could see everything she had to do for the week. And then also her daily things that she did every day, which was the exercise, the task practice, the medications helped her kind of plan better, I think. Sarah, I think you should also talk about that video that you saw about the three Ps. Yeah, that was a good video. The, what was it? Prioritize, pace, and plan. Yeah, I like that video. It was an OT that made a video I found on YouTube from Canadian Stroke Best Practices. So she kind of just talked about energy conservation in a really simple way. So she said, know the, she called them gas guzzlers. So know the tasks that require using multiple parts of your brain. That's going to make you the most fatigued. So meal preparation, banking, um, interacting with people in very stimulating environments. So a lot of background noise, driving in traffic, like stop and go traffic if you're driving even reading something is highly demanding on your brain. So she said, number one for the three P's, number one would be prioritize. So create a whole big to-do list. It doesn't matter what you use. If you want to use your phone or you can use just a pen and paper, I would use a pen and paper. I like that. And then you make a list of all the activities you need to do or you want to do. And then she mentioned that that list is nice because you can also use this to delegate activities not to put more work on the caregiver, but if you have that ability to delegate not so important activities to someone else, that's really helpful because then they can see what has to be done. And then also she said, be sure to include activities you enjoy, which I think is a big one because you don't want to do work, work, work because that's not good for you. And then number two would be planning. So after you prioritize what you have to do, plan your week. So take the days from your master to-do list and plan them out so you can conserve your energy. So plan for rest breaks, 
take time at night to review the day that happened and plan for the next day and try to make your life as easy as possible. So don't put all your really demanding tasks on one day and start easy. And then you can gradually work your way up to more activity as you tolerate it. And then the last one is going to be pacing. So she mentions that that's kind of the glue that holds prioritizing and planning together. So this is really where the energy conservation comes in. So she said, give yourself plenty of time to do each task. Simplify activities if possible. So an example would be sitting versus standing, if that's an option. Or if you're walking, take an elevator up a few floors instead of walking up the stairs if they have an elevator. And then also incorporate breaks throughout your day. So that doesn't have to be just taking a nap. It could be any sort of rest. So like light stretching, meditation. She said a light snack. I would probably pick that one. <laughs> she also said break up larger tasks over your week, which is kind of what I said before. And then something that I think is really important for this is alternate your thinking activities with your physical activities. So alternate like the activities that require a lot of brain power. So banking or financial management with activities that's more physical and low brain power. So like cleaning your kitchen or dusting something easy. And also one more thing that she said, which also is very important is adhere to other healthy routines. So we talked about sleep, adhere to those sleep schedules, adhere to medication schedules, adhere to your exercise schedule, and also adhere to socialization and nutrition. So I think that the main takeaway that I want everyone to know from that video and my main takeaway was that the three P's, so prioritizing, planning, and pacing will help you conserve energy to do whatever you need to do. I had a fourth P of give me your three P's again and I'll add you my fourth one. So what were the three P's that you found from this Prioritize, video? planning, pacing. Positioning. Oh. Tracy, I was just about Good to one. say that. <laughs> Clever. Yeah, there are times when I'm working clinically that I review, I review the four Ps. Depending on how they are, I go through the four Ps and I have them write them down so they have something to take with them. I will be very honest with you, most of the individuals that I'm doing that with, it's not because of post-stroke fatigue, however. So that's something that I'm going to put in my think tank and to hold on to. Mm -hmm. Thank you. To add on to what Sarah was saying and what Tracy was saying about positioning, there's actually a PDF right online that's called Energy Conservation Booklet, Patient Information Leaflet. And it's from occupational therapists. And they actually have six Ps. Um, but it was prioritized, plan, and pace. And then it talked about positioning, pursed lip breathing, which is just another a breathing technique to help energy conservation, and positive attitude. So Ooh. adding more Ps to the list. So I think with the positioning, what I wanted to touch on is just kind of go through some of these that they talk about. Because I think when we think positioning, the first thing that comes to my mind is, okay, I got to sit up tall and straight, but there is so much more such as 
avoiding tasks that require prolonged standing or squatting up and down. You can always use like a reacher instead of squatting down. Try not to keep your arms way above your head for a long period of time. Grab something way up high and then put it down and like give yourself a rest before doing it again if need be. And another thing is when you're sitting at a table, like use that table, put your arms on the table for support so your trunk isn't exerting so much energy. And then with the positive attitude, it's more think about the things that you can do rather than the ones that you can't do and be creative in finding ways to do the things that you struggle to do. Try not to say, well, I can't stand for five minutes. Well, you can sit for five minutes so you can still participate in this activity and you know, try to stand for one minute and build up to that. So focusing on what you can do rather than what you can't do can give that positive mindset, which is motivating for you to keep going to better yourself and get to that, reach the goals that you want at the end of the recovery. I think along with that positive mindset, there's got to be a phase of acceptance of accepting what's happened, what is happening. And I think when we get into a place of acceptance, we can be more mindful about choosing those activities that we want to do. And then as we integrate this new lifestyle and being sure to incorporate some of the socialization and the things that bring you joy, I think then it becomes more natural to experience a more positive mindset and um, just, you know, a more relaxed day. And more, it's really not a P, but I'm going to say empowered to have them realize that they can do things, albeit in a different fashion, but it's still their choice to be doing them. And that's how they can. And I think that it's so valuable to, for, to have those who are experiencing it, both from the, from the client and from the caregiver perspective, that post-stroke fatigue, that it is a thing. And it's not just that they're tired, that it's a specific phenomenon that's occurring since they've had their stroke because they've had their stroke and that people need to understand that it's to be expected and it is widely seen and everyone experiences it differently because that's something else that people have a hard time with if someone else doesn't experience it my way is it is it really happening or is it all in my head yeah I like what you said too about empower because self-efficacy is uh, something that came up in the research mm -hmm. that we were looking at. And I think everything that we've learned today, if people are able to integrate just one thing, like don't do it all. Don't, you know, find the thing that resonates the most with you that you feel like sometimes I, when I'm trying to do something new, I find the simple thing. What could I do? That's so easy that I can't fail because I need to have success. And I think as humans, we need to experience a level of success. And that gives us that feeling of self-efficacy. And then we can build a routine and a habit around that because that's going to decrease cognitive load, which will help with that post-stroke fatigue. 
And then when you're ready, choose the next thing. And then each time you integrate something or you make a positive change in your life and you find yourself living, you do experience more of that self-efficacy and then it becomes a cycle that feeds itself in a positive direction. This was amazing. I'd like to tape in the morning when I'm more alert. Yeah, sure. I can do that too. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> I think just analyzed my day and I think <laughs> that would be a potential benefit. Schedule it. <laughs> right? Prioritize that, Tracy. I love that. I think, you know, all this stuff that we talked about, this is this is good for anybody in life. And, and our culture, this busy culture, I think it's, I feel like it's slowly disintegrating. At least it is in my life. I'm tired of cramming so many things in a day. And I think, you know, that's, that's probably part of the hard, a, a challenge for people who experienced a stroke or a caregiver who has a loved one experiencing a stroke is, you know, your, your days are going to be different now. Your days. Yeah. And yeah. pick the things that you love to do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Alyssa, Sarah, Tracy. What better way to spend an evening than with three smart people? Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. We enjoyed being on here. It was a lot of fun. Yes. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.